This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. I'd like to speak this evening about taking refuge in Sangha. And uh, the thing that got me going on this was that uh, I've been watching a TV program, uh, which I realize is about the anti-Sangha. Uh, this is a program called The Americans. Does anybody know? Lots of people. So um, we're slowly binging it on, on Netflix. Uh, just one uh, in the evening. Um, you know the, the situation in this? So there's this uh, couple who are actually like KGB agents. And they come to the United States, a uh, young married couple, and they start their family here, and they're kind of, uh, um, they call it deep, uh, deep cover. Deep cover, yeah, so they're in deep cover. And, uh, and they're, you know, sending information. Uh, from the United States and doing other things like killing people and, and uh, <laughs> wearing all kinds of interesting disguises. In fact, that's a great uh, image for this little sangha that they have because everybody's in disguise all the time. There are no relationships that are truthful. There are no relationships where there are no betrayals. And there's nothing trustworthy in this whole group of people. Um, their teenage daughter, whose name is Paige, you know, eventually realizes that her parents keep lying to her about where they are and what they're doing. She confronts them. And uh, just at the time that this is happening, the KGB wants them to recruit their daughter as an agent. So, you know, it's one betrayal within another, within another. And um, so they start to tell their daughter Paige kind of the truth, you know, that they weren't actually born in America, they were born in Russia, and uh, they're working here for world peace. You know. And uh, uh, Paige flips out. And she has a friend who is a pastor Pastor Tim, and her parents tell her, you can't tell anybody about this because we'll be put in jail for good if you do. And uh, so, of course, she tells Pastor Tim, uh, and Pastor Tim, you know, really wants information about these people and what they're doing and, you know, who are they spying on and this kind of stuff. But he lies to Paige and he says, oh, I won't tell anybody. Let's just find out a little bit about what they're doing and what's going on. So everybody, even the pastor and his teenage congregant, lying to each other. And so this is anti-sangha. This, this kind of pattern of uh, untruthfulness, betrayal is exactly the opposite of something. In fact, there's a great 
sutta from the Pali suttas. I'm going to read you the beginning of it. This, this describes uh, the truth of Sangha. Uh, the sutta is this, Thus I have heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Shakyans, where there was a town of the Shakyans named uh, uh, Nagaraka. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Blessed One and paid homage to him, sat down to one side and said, Venerable Sir, this is half of the spiritual life, that is, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. The Buddha says, Not so, Ananda. This is the entire spiritual life. That is, good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. He said, when a monk has a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, then it is to be expected that he will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's really true. In this, you know, series, the Americans, everybody is duplicitous and the, and the betrayal just permeates everybody in the whole system. And Buddha's teaching was that Sangha is really the entirety of, of the path. That if you bring people together where there are good companions and good friends, then naturally they will practice truth. Naturally they will practice um, all the elements of the Eightfold Path, right conduct, right speech. The, uh, the structure of these relationships, uh, friends in the spiritual path, will actually permeate everybody. Just like the betrayal permeates everybody in that uh, uh, series that I'm talking about. And people will behave in ways that create harmony and that make awakening possible. So this is the way Buddha thought of the original Sangha as really the whole of the path. Uh, one of the original words for Sangha was actually Sat Sangha. Sat in uh, Sanskrit, uh, truth. Like Satyagraha. Um, and a Sangha community. So the community of truth. Or the community that comes together in order to be open to the truth. To, comes together in order to open up to the truth. So I think w this is one of the characteristics of Sangha. Probably of every Sangha. Certainly ours. We come together to sit, and what is sitting but opening to the truth of this very moment? And we form a community to encourage ourselves in that openness, in, in zazen. 
sometimes we think of zazen as a way that we're open to our minds, you know, allowing whatever is produced to, to be produced. But do we think of zazen as allowing us to be open to sangha? Maybe not. Maybe sometimes we take sangha for granted. You know that word satsanga, a community of truth. Also could be translated as true home. So taking refuge in Sangha is like returning to a true home in Sangha. Being in Sangha is, like Dogen said, like the tiger when it enters the mountain. This is the place that nourishes our tigerness. This is the place that nourishes practice. So the original Sangha in Buddhist time was really very interesting. It kind of had two components. Um, the hermits and the monastics. And all of the people in the Sangha had received the precepts. So they, they were bonded together in, in that sense of uh, conduct. You know, there's a, a good way to conduct ourselves. And they, they shared that idea. So it was a community of shared values. But the hermits liked to practice alone and the monastics liked to practice, you know, with other, with other people. Lay people, by the way, were not thought of as sangha, even though the entire sangha depended on lay people because the only food they had, the only cloth that they had for robes came from donations. But lay people were not thought of as Sangha. The name for it was uh, Parisa, the larger Buddhist community which was distinct from Sangha. They had the hermits and the monastics and they all came together during the rainy season. Uh, and that's when uh, people, the monks gathered together and uh, they may have gathered where Buddha was, and so received teachings from Buddha, or some of the elders among the monks, if, if they gathered in other places, would, would teach the Dharma. And uh, it's an interesting story. When, when they all came together, the hermits complained about all the afflictions and distractions in the monastic life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they were really used to <laughs> no afflictions, no distractions. Come to the monastic like, oh, there's so many things going on, it's so busy, was, was their feeling about this. <laughs> they said, uh, um, there's all these things that impede the practice of the path. You have to obey the rules of the monastery. You have to interrupt your meditation in order to receive guests or to take care of tasks in the monastery. But still, I think they, they bore this more or less gladly. The custom in the early Sangha was to, to address everyone as friend. This was so interesting, given the larger community that the Sangha was in. The early Sangha was very uh, equal. Everyone was friend. The larger community was so structured and hierarchical, right? Different castes, you couldn't cross the boundaries of these castes. All that disappears in the sun. 
And Sangha was open to all, regardless of caste. Anybody could join. All you had to do was, was have a way-seeking mind. And uh, eventually, there started to be a bit of a hierarchy in the Sangha. And eventually, there were monks who had been practicing and being taught by the Buddha for 20 years, 30 years, right? And so they, these were the elders of the community. And, and at the same time, there were people who were just joining. So a kind of hierarchy developed in the Sangha. And uh, elders were addressed with some honorific, in, in English we would say, sir. Uh, uh, juniors were addressed as friends. But it, it was it was kind of like older brother and sister, right? Everybody recognized everybody else as, you know, one of the same community. And it's interesting, if you ever practice in a monastic community, especially in an ango, to the long 90-day period, you know, where everybody's practicing together all the time. And you really get to know everybody. Right? And uh, it's really interesting. Um, you're used to people sitting in a particular place. Everybody sits in the same place in the Zendo every day. And so if you see somebody's place open, you wonder, oh, what's going on with George? Is he sick today? You know, there's a kind of a sense of this is family. We all know who each other is. So in this early teaching about Sangha, uh, actually, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are all conflated into one good friends. Um, Buddha said to Ananda, by, following, uh, by the following method, Ananda, it may be understood how the entire spiritual life is good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. By relying on me as a good friend, Buddha said to Ananda. And the role of the Sangha was to maintain the integrity of the Dharma and to spread the authentic teachings. You know, monks were mendicants, and so they would go begging for their alms and whatever they were given they would eat for their noonday meal. And they were completely dependent on the lay community. Um, Of course, we go out and work. But I was aware of it today. I, uh, this evening I was working on Dharma talk upstairs in the study, and I could hear Mary, you know, like emptying the dishwasher and, and uh, uh, getting supper ready downstairs. And I thought, yeah, okay, so this is, this is the same tradition. Some people do, do some practices like taking care uh, of the Sangha so that the Sangha can teach. The lay community made it safe for the monks. And there was an understanding in the lay community about it's really good to have these monks around. Um, the renunciants were uh, understood 
to bring magical powers to the community. Like they would bring rain and make the soil fertile, <laughs> things like that. In fact, Buddha was once asked, what magical powers do your monks have? <laughs> and he said, my monks have the most magical of powers. When, they, when they're sitting, they know that they're sitting. When they're standing, they know that they're standing. When they're walking, they know that they're walking. And when they're lying down, they know that they're lying down. So Buddha, you know, went along with this, but he really understood what magic really is. Magic is really the ability to be present in our real lives. <laughs> you know, it's not bringing rain, it's not making the soil fertile, it's not uh, creating those kinds of conditions. But it's creating the conditions for awakening. Uh, when we move into the Mahayana, more modern form of Buddhism, Sangha takes on a new meaning. It's, uh, first of all, it's not necessarily restricted to monks. Certainly, Sangha encompasses all practitioners, but also all beings. Right? Sangha, really, in the Mahayana, takes on a universal quality to it. Um, universal, including. Um, all the ancestors that have gone on the path before us. So, uh, uh, in our service we say uh, at the end, all Buddhas, ten directions, uh, three worlds, all venerable ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas. What we're doing is we're invoking Sangha to be present with us. Sangha in the Mahayana goes even beyond human beings. Sangha is all creatures, great and small. And even though we might have uh, people in the Sangha who have been practicing together for decades, or people who have been practicing together for only a few months, uh, all are equal in Sangha. Because in our practice, everyone creates Sangha at every moment. Not Certainly all of us create Sangha equally at every moment. But of course, the whole universe creates Sangha. Even in this talk, you might think that I'm giving the talk. But actually, we're all bringing out the Dharma together. There would be no talk without participation from everyone. And so it's really important in our practice to, to investigate how do we take refuge in Sangha. Of course, great teacher Dogen had some ideas about that. He said, um, um, this is how monks should come together. Those who have way-seeking mind and wish to abandon fame and gain should enter. Know that when the way-seeking mind is aroused within, there is immediate freedom from fame and gain. And we all know this, that Sangha supports way-seeking mind. 
We come together with fellow practitioners and we know it encourages us in our study and in our practice of the way. Way-seeking mind recognizes the passing away of all things. It sees the opportunity of this life as it really is. It's limited. It occurs in the context of the impermanence that Mary was talking with us about last week. And in that sober view of things, the desire for fame and gain seems kind of superfluous. So Dogen was right. If, if we develop way-seeking mind, then some of the selfish things that we might be preoccupied with in everyday life just aren't important to me. And that's part of the role of Sangha, part of how we take refuge in Sangha. Is Sangha holds that for us, holds the idea of it's possible to have way-seeking mind. And simply that, simply the development of way-seeking mind is the uh, realization of the path. In Sangha, you know, the uh, more ego-driven needs that we have drop away. I remember, I, I'm reminded by that poem by Shelley. Uh, do you know the poem Ozymandias? So this is a great poem, right? Uh, traveler in the desert comes across a broken statue. Right? It was a statue of a great king, but all, it's just in pieces, half buried. There's nothing. It's desolate all around. But the, uh, the inscription at the base of the statue can still be read. And the inscription says, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. It's great, isn't it? Because there's nothing. <laughs> it's all ruined. Time has had its way. <laughs> in the context of impermanence, in the context of time having its way, even, even the fame of kings is nothing. And we see this. We see, you know, oh, is it really that important that I get this promotion or whatever in the context of there are some important things in life. And the important things are to practice so that we could awaken, to help others awaken, and to preserve within our community this desire to awaken, this aspiration to awaken. Dogen said, we should regard the subtle passage of time which is eating away this opportunity for practice of the way. He said, we should have the sense of ourselves as being fish in a small puddle that's gradually drying up. <laughs> you know, we should have that kind of urgency to practicing together. We should have that kind of urgency to, to um, the practice of the way. The puddle will soon be dry. So let's practice now when we have a chance. This was Dogen's philosophy.
And in a way, this way-seeking mind is the mind that is open to the truth, open to satsanga. We have so little here, there's nothing to get jealous of with anybody else. There's just openness to the truth. You know, we might think, oh, I'm sitting stiller than the person next to me. <laughs> but that's a really small achievement. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just nothing that's going to bring us a lot of fame or gain. <laughs> Practicing the, in the Sangha helps us let all that stuff go. To kind of recover that egalitarian sense that was there in the original Sangha. Way-seeking mind recognizes that any urge we have for being special, or fame and gain, as Dogen would say, you know, is just secretions from the everyday mind. Nothing that we really have to pay attention to. Way-seeking mind that we actualize in the Sangha reminds us that our purpose is one of living in harmony with each other and with the universe. And we should ask, do we do that here? Pretty much, I think. Maybe there's a little inharmonious thing that arises from time to time. When we're walking in Kinhin, maybe we think, the person ahead of me is walking too slow. <laughs> <laughs> And if something like that occurred in regular life, you know, we would like do something about it. We would tell the person, walk faster. Or we would kind of go around the person and, and walk at the pace we want to walk, you know, so that we're not impeded by that person. But you know what? We can't do any of those things in our practice here in Sangha because our practice is really pretty simple. You just walk together in peace and harmony. If the thought comes up, he's walking too slow, it's just another secretion from your mind, right? The, the practice is just to walk together. Sangha, sangha ensures, really, that there's nothing to do about these inharmonious ideas, because our, our practice is kind of regulated. And because there's nothing to do about it, we have the opportunity to see our thoughts in our mind just as it is. It's producing all kinds of thoughts about who's better and who's worse. Always. Judging mind is always there. And because we can see it, we have the opportunity to let go of those thoughts, let go of body and mind, and be present. Harmonize ourselves with the practice of our friends. Dogen said, you should make the present moment the true source. Have compassion for later generations by giving emphasis to being in the present. The assembly of students in the hall should blend together like milk and water to support the activity of the way. I think that's a wonderful image. In fact, that image goes way back as used in the early suttas. Monks should blend together like milk and water. It's true. Not that you couldn't tell the difference between Anuj and Mary or Nick and me, you know. 
but we blend together like milk and water. When you put milk and water together, they become their own thing, and the milk and water is not distinguishable. Dogen says, although for now, I'm sorry, although now for some period you are either guest or host, later you will be Buddha ancestors equally throughout all time. Therefore, you should not forget the feeling of gratitude. It is rare to meet one another and to have the opportunity to practice what is rare to practice. Sangha nourishes us. We have together this opportunity to practice what is rare to practice. What is common to practice is striving for name and game. That's the common practice. We have this opportunity to practice harmonizing with each other. There's this pitch that we all hear when we're We'll harmonize with that pitch. And that pitch is the dark. So we should preserve this practice, not only with each other, but by harmonizing with the universe, too. Dogen says, if you do not enter Buddhism in this life, in which life will you realize the truth? Now, right here, we have it. And we should keep it well. Now is the time for the fire on your head to be brushed off. Is it, is it not sad if you waste this time concerning yourself with secular affairs? Life is impermanent and unreliable. No one knows where and when this dew-like existence will drop from the grass. Not recognizing this is truly regrettable. So we have this Sangha, which is really undiluted oneness, undiluted harmony with all beings. Even the beings we don't like. <laughs> I was once at the Art Institute, and a uh, docent at the Art Institute had a class of like, I don't know, third graders. And you know, the, that great hall where they have all the Buddha statues, you know, we were in that hall. She pointed to a statue of the Buddha. This is the Buddha who believed that you should treat all beings with loving kindness, even spiders. <laughs> That's great, you know, to, to have an image of the, the one thing maybe that a, that a third grader wouldn't want to treat with loving kindness. Well, that and a little brother, I suppose. But spiders, you know, even spiders. 
And so the question for us in the large Sangha is, what do we do with the problem of spiders? <laughs> what do we do with the problem of, there are people that our natural inclination is not to like, or not to feel one with. There, or another way to say it, is that there are some beings out there who scare us, and who seem incomprehensible to us. You know, sometimes we look out into the Sangha, the greater Sangha, and we say, how could this possibly be happening? What would possibly motivate a person to act in that way? And sometimes our empathy fails us. Sometimes it uh, can make us feel discouraged to see how often, how frequently we can all be kind of carried over to the dark side. In some religions, this would be externalized. It would say, oh, well, that's the working of Lucifer. Right. Or those people are sinners. And yet, for us to take refuge in Sangha is to affirm that we are all inclusive, that the one does not have a two, right? and it's right here, that this is our real life, which is full of things that cause suffering and things that relieve suffering. So our, our struggle is to recognize the great Sangha, the Maha Sangha, say in Sanskrit. To recognize that the community that upholds the Buddha's teaching is the entire community. Right? We practitioners recognize that we practice with dependence on the entire universe, the whole community of life, just the way the entire Sangha depended on the community that supported it. And so we have to find a way, even though there are those who feel to us like spiders, like, oh, I don't want them in my life. We have to recognize that some, in some way that person or those persons are us. And we're practicing for the awakening of all of us. I think this, this is the Mahayana view of Sangha, and that is our practice is so that all beings awaken, even spiders. Let me ask for questions or comments. Um, 
it, it, it's something that I've like since sitting with the sun and, and kind of deeper it's, it's been a pretty good shift for me. I, I was never like a, a bully or I was never someone that, but you know, I, I would like have my people that I would like sort of say, yeah, you're, you know, like complain about or sort of yeah. wish not so well on, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. and there's been a significant shift, but it, it's tough, especially with what's going on in the world now, but um, it, it's a challenge to sort of keep that mindset and to yeah. keep your heart open to you in fact, far from it, we have us and them. Yeah. So to be able to like not come off as like holier than thou, or, or like not come off as like because uh, you know family members, loved ones, right? The like uh, you know complaining about someone or, or yeah. badly about someone, and having them feel heard, but also not engaging in it. Yeah. It's been a challenge. Whereas in the past I would engage in it. Of course. Or encourage it. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so it's part of my practice that I, I work with a lot. It's um, something I have to be mindful of. My tendency, I'm drawn towards it. So I have to be mindful of Yeah. Our, our practice is to be open to the truth. And the truth is you know, that. Our practice is really for all beings, even the ones we don't like. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, uh, trying to figure out what the point of practice is. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I think a lot of things I did, a lot of just kind of come to uh, meditation and uh, maybe onto the spiritual path, maybe looking for some relief. But I actually think uh, it's really about like I mean it's really about like the community and actually how we interact with one another is uh, like if that's not done well like there is no salvation I mean right it's uh, go yell at somebody and see how you feel and see how you feel exactly see how easy it is to practice the eightfold path at that point in the middle of an argument. Yeah, give somebody food and then go practice and see how you feel. Yeah. You know, it's really, uh, <laughs> I think it's really like linked in to, uh, like you can't do it without, you know. And I think like personally for me, like my, in my own like psyche, it's actually strangers. I'm like really judgy. <laughs> Against like people I don't like know, or just people I see like walking down the street, or got sure. this bag that I'm like I got ideas about this company, or you know, yeah. <laughs> and like I might feel jerk like in my own head, uh-huh. you know. And uh, there's like a practice you had uh, like me like a year and a half ago, where it was like when I kind of noticed that happening, and if I'm quiet enough, I can actually like, well, can I see the suffering in this person, and in that person, and in this person? immediately like all of that starts to like melt away I know you know because um, yeah. I'm actually bypassing my own judgments and my thoughts and trying to connect with people in a yeah. real way yeah and when I try to do that 
and like that's a practice in itself, but also I'm just not all locked up. <laughs> you know, um, so I do think like the way that we treat one another immediately in the sangha and like in the broader sangha is a direct marker of it directly impacts uh, us in zazen, not zazen. You know, it's that opening to the truth, satsanga, you know. Uh, what's the first truth? The first truth is their suffering. <laughs> That's, really, if we look anywhere at anybody we don't like, or anybody we do like, that's the thing we see, right? And, and with that, then some of the differences melt. You know, some of the separations that we make melt. Because mm -hmm. We see ourselves in that. <laughs>